Thanks for that rip-roaring start. All right. Well, we need to biblically cast down all strongholds, and we need to construct every area of life on the Bible alone as our sole infallible rule of faith and practice. So we heard some historical events uh, in terms of the failure of man-centered religion and government, and now we're going to hear some current events the present failures of man-centered religion and government. Notice that that which is anthropocentric always fails. That which is man-centered always fails. And to bring us this is our wonderful deacon and ruling elder candidate, Aaron Davies. Aaron Davies has earned a degree in physics from Caltech. He works as a software engineer. He has six children, all homeschooled. He has a, an amazing wife. I've known, I've been blessed to know him for a significant, significant amount of time. Wouldn't want to age myself here. <laughs> and I think for as long as I've known him, he's been passionate about apologetics. So, warm round of applause. By the way, interwebs peeps, like, share, and subscribe. I've always wanted to say that. But warm round of applause for Aaron Davies. Thank you, Daniel. It's an honor to be up here to speak. Um, thank you, Bob, for that <clears throat> opening. Excuse me. <clears throat> I will have to build on that. So let's get started. Um, a common occurrence among us who resist liberalism in the United States is the sharing of those sentiments, right? You get together and I'm sure you and I have had many conversations of the, can you believe what they're doing, right? What did the governor do? What did the president do? Can you believe that? What I was thinking for this talk, though, I was hoping to offer something a little more in-depth than kind of that conversation from a microphone. Bob had mentioned that, you know, failure is a lack of success. Well, as I was sitting down and thinking about this talk, I was thinking, well, before we can really address the failures of man-centeredness in our myths, I thought, what would we consider a success? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I mean, you can't really determine something's a failure unless you had some particular goal or achievement in mind. If, if I was going to go for a one-mile run, and I wanted it to be eight minutes long, and you're going to go for a one-mile run, and you were hoping to get six, miles, or six minutes, a seven-minute mile would be an accomplishment for, for me, but it would be a failure for you. And we base that on multiple things, like how fit we think we are, what we, how well we slept, maybe. It's complicated, right? But how would a Christian define events in history as successes or failures? Let's say there was a socialist country, a communist country, that was actually successful in guaranteeing everyone wealth and education and health care. Would we consider that a success? I hope you wouldn't. But why? We know from Scripture that Jesus Christ sustains the existence of the universe. In him, all things consist, Colossians 1.17 says. We know also that he directs all of history. Well, he has authority, he has full authority. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, Matthew 28.18. And he directs all of history. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15.25. It's on the basis of this scripture that the Christian knows a purpose and goal for history. He is able to make sense of history. Jesus Christ, in his death, resurrection, and ascension, 
has made progress possible. And he has made it possible for the Christian to participate in that progression of his rule. The unbeliever, however, in his denial of God, cannot have what Proverbs 10.28 calls the hope of the righteous that brings joy. Instead, his expectations will perish, the proverb says. You see, without Jesus Christ, you cannot have a comprehensive eschatology. There's no one righteous king in an atheistic worldview to whom all will submit. There is no resurrection of the Son of Man who has conquered death. So there's, there's no assurance, there's no, there's no reason upon anything where one could even know that progress is even possible. How could we know that man could actually overcome anything outside of Christ? The unbeliever then can only live for the present. He may speak of goals like freedom, liberty, justice, happiness, but their definitions are vague, or they're limited in scope, or they're hopelessly subjective, or they're twisted to mean the opposite of what the words actually mean. He can't in any cohesive sense describe what the future should look like and under whom it should be. Right? You see this in politics, isolated issues. There's no comprehensive plan unlike the Christian worldview. It's because living for the present brings death into the future. Proverbs 8, all who hate me love death. And as Bob quoted from Isaiah, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That is the underlying unbelieving eschatology. So then how do we define failure? Well, it's when man's religion and politics do not align with Christ's objectives in history. Christ is the success. That is the only lens through which we can really view current events and really judge them correctly. You must compare what Christ wants to do with what people are doing. Hopefully that makes sense. That's, that's the idea here. And more importantly, it's important to note that failure is a temporary status. So I don't want to be pessimistic here. We have these talks called failures. If we really believe that Christ really will submit everyone to his authority, then looking at current failures is an exercise in determining what evil is left to be destroyed, rather than the pessimistic would say how far evil has progressed. You see the difference there? That's how we're looking at this. So with that view in mind, I want to take some examples of where we are currently. Beginning with religion and the state. This is sort of a foundational one. R.J. Rushduni makes the point that the United States is unique in history in that, quote, religion was recognized to be an independent sphere from the state. That's a big deal. By law, our country has allowed a great degree of research and progressive practice of theology. Now, keep in mind when I use the word progressive, I mean towards a Christian goal, not what the liberals mean by progressive. Um, we're able to make advances in theology in this country without the threat of a state church or of state oppression. However, Rush Dooney also contends that, quote, no civil government can exist where there is a total freedom of religion. He cites a U.S. Supreme Court case on polygamy. And I'll quote, the court called monogamous marriage the sacred obligation. But this was Reynolds, the, um, 
defendant's contention, that polygamy was for him a sacred obligation. On what ground could the court limit the sacredness to monogamy? Well, Rushduni argues that it's only if the court presupposes the validity of Christian morality and saw that it alone has legal status, and that alone can limit the sacredness. Well, the problem is that that principle, that only Christian morality has legal status, is not found in the court's decision. It's not found in the Constitution, or really any legally binding document in our country. Very specific here. Okay? The judges can only refer to monogamy as something that's popularly held to be sacred. Or they would argue, or they also argued in the decision that there would be anarchy would, that would, would result if people were given complete religious freedom. But the one key thing that's missing is that there's no direct affirmation of Christian thought being the only basis for sustainable legal theory. To demonstrate this problem further, Rushdini cites another case in which a prosecutor in a murder case makes the following closing remark to the jury. This accused man, I quote, has taken a life. As the Bible says, the murderer shall be put to death. Well, the court took exception to this remark in the sense that, quote, an independent source of law exists for the conclusion that the death penalty is the appropriate punishment. Accordingly, the court barred prosecutors from referring to the Bible or any other religious writing when trying to persuade a jury to require the death penalty. Because you see what's going on here? Remember, there's no direct affirmation of Christian thought. The court maintains itself as the sole source of law. It refuses to be discipled by the word of God. If it makes a decision one way or the other, it is not because God has said so, but it's because it has said so. Right? You cannot... Um, Christ has called all judges to explicitly serve the Lord and kiss the Son, as Psalm 2 says, and he has commanded that all nations be discipled. So here you have direct resistance to that very thing. You cannot bring the Bible into the court and use it for the decision. It's a failure, then, that Christians do not have a formal legal basis to drive the country's leadership towards specific obedience to the Bible. This prosecutor tried it, and he was not allowed to do so. In the absence of such a basis, they are restricted through this court opinion from attempting to do so. You know, you have this um, uh, precedence thing that they build on. Say, well, in this previous court case, we set this precedent, so we're not going to break it now. So it's fascinating. This failure still remains, even though this is arguably the most advanced country in the Christian era. Right? We're all happy to be here, and we're making progress, but we have this restriction so it's a failure. Okay, moving more specifically to justice, Greg Bonson argues in his book Theonomy and Christian Ethics that a biblical penal system is necessary to protect the innocent and to destroy evil. This should be the goal of a penal system. He asserts that the biblical system is not excessive, neither is it lenient, but that it fits the particular crime. And it is not subject to arbitrary or pragmatic decisions by judges. In contrast to the biblical system, the modern prison system is, and I quote, extraneous to biblical law, and it serves no dictate of justice as a penal sanction. 
Uh, he mentions varying fines for traffic violations from state to state and the release of criminals from prison for practical reasons, such as, say, the spread of disease or because of the constant crime that happens within prison walls. All these things make the American system at odds with God's revealed will. Rushdoony goes further by stating that America has instituted a system of flexible, individualized treatments that bring the focus to the criminal, not the victim. Rather than forcing the criminal to make restitution to the victim for the crime, the victim must remain content with a sentence of the criminal suffering behind bars as justice. And the innocent public puts the bill for this in two ways. First, the greater the crime, the longer the stay in jail, and therefore the greater the cost. Secondly, the funding of various societal programs designed to address the pretended source of the crime itself. Not the person who did the crime, but something external, economic, deficiency or an educational deficiency in the criminal's life or society, that, has been, that was the source of his crime, not his unredeemed, personally sinful nature, which is common to all men. And you can just take, for an example, the Derek Chauvin sentencing, right? Completely arbitrary. Well, we do 15 years, I'm going to do 22. And you can, if you watch the CNN anchor's response to that, they're like, oh, it's like a punch in the gut. And he's right. It is a slap in the face. It's just arbitrary. Why not 30, 40, 80, 10? Biblically, holding one in custody is only prescribed when the sentence has yet to be determined. But by using an arbitrarily length custody as the sentence itself, justice is never actually delivered. You're just holding the prisoner or the, the criminal, as if there's no decision yet. And in this way, our leaders have become companions of criminals, and they have abandoned the victims. And so they are failures before God. Isaiah 123 says, Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. As a consequence, criminals, we have found, are not afraid to commit crimes. We're not afraid to go out and riot. Police are now reluctant to perform their duties because there's no justice. I have a friend who worked as an L.A. cop, and he told me, you know what, I'm all for stoning. You should see the people who come back and back. And I asked him, did you do it again? Oh, yeah. Citizens now must live in fear of their neighbors. And if you want a prophetic statement... As Pastor Paul likes to say, I don't, I'm not, I don't have you know, prophetic insight. But if you wanted a reason why we're unstable and often seem to be under judgment, I'd say this is it. A lack of justice. Moving on to economics. Based on a seemingly anecdotal note in Genesis 2 about fine gold being available in a particular land, Gary North comments on the natural beauty of gold. It's pretty. It's pretty, and it's scarcity as a particular gift from God. You've got to go and dig for it. It's not just sitting there in the chair. And how it has uh, a near universal use as a currency. Like you can go, if you find a Roman gold coin, it's still gold. It's still good. I imagine if you find a paper dollar from the United States 300 years from now, it may not be worth anything at all. He says, and I quote, it's when men as citizens or government officials tamper with the gold and silver content of a currency that disaster results. They risk the production of dross currency and dross consumer goods. 
He refers to Isaiah 22. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. They pour less, I continue quote from North, they pour less expensive metals into the silver or gold used to cast coins, you know, zinc or whatever, and they substitute for gold paper notes, checks, or computer entries. And then they multiply those notes and checks and computer entries. To drive this point home, Rushdini says this is, uh, this sort of fractional reserve banking is common among all nations and introduces fraud into every single economic transaction, Right? I'm giving you a dollar that's like a time bomb. It's, it's, gonna, it's, it's, it's dissolving in your hand. Diverse weights and diverse measures, Solomon says in Proverbs 20, they are both alike an abomination to the Lord. We're restricted to use these notes, these paper dollars that can be multiplied. It's the only legal tender. You can't go to Ralph's and say, well, I have a Roman gold coin. Can I have a cookie? They won't give it to you. We are forced into accepting these notes for all transactions. Its value is regularly reduced through its constant printing, and it's printed to subsidize political programs, and there is no wealth having been generated behind it. It's not as though we were a successful country, we have this excess wealth, and we're going to do these programs. The programs are thought of, and then they're subsidized by printed money. This is what Rushdie calls a legalized theft of citizens' earned wealth, and he, he makes the point, and this is years ago, makes the point this is only different from rioting and looting in that um, instead of seeing it on the streets every once in a while, this is actually just happening in a regular official context or just regularly taking your money and making it worth less rather than just coming and stealing it. Um, but he makes a very good point here. He says, sadly, conservatives tend to be more interested in making the current system work for them for their own profit, rather than trying to address its very existence at all. Precious metals like gold, apart from Federal Reserve notes, require the work and technology of man to mine it from the ground. So you can see how that can glorify God. Its supply is limited by its creator, not by a computer scientist or by a politician, and its value remains throughout history regardless of what countries exist like the Roman gold coin. Moving towards society in the state, we have in Scripture multiple admonitions for individuals and churches to care for the poor. You just, just search for the word poor and read those Scriptures. Christ instructs a rich young ruler, someone who has authority, someone who could probably tax someone, to sell whatever you have and give it to the poor, Mark ten twenty one. He does not instruct him to raise taxes and take other people's wealth and give that to the poor. That's not Jesus' instruction. In his speech, inaugurating his famous, quote, faith-based initiative to no longer restrict uh, religious groups from requesting subsidies for charity work. I don't know if you realize that was the case. It wasn't just money to charities. Is that religious groups could now request subsidy for charity from the government. Then-President George W. Bush described his presuppositions in doing this program as such. I approach this goal with some basic principles. Government has important responsibilities for public health or public order and civil rights. This is a Republican president. And government will never be replaced by charities and community groups. I'm going to contend today that it is the church, however, that will never be replaced by government. 
The church diaconate, and I quote the OPC's Book of Church Order, is called to show forth the compassion of Christ. It exercises the recognized stewardship of care for those in need. Quote. It provides personal discipleship of the poor out of their poverty and being run by volunteers, if you will, were ordained, but let's just for the sake of economics, it costs nothing more for the most part. I mean, we have to be in a building and have the lights on. It costs nothing more than really what we're giving to the people that we're giving to, as opposed to what the cost of government is. The government, being a ministry of the sword, Romans 13.4, he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. See, the, the, that's the job description. <laughs> to hear the president speaking of something that's not in that description. So it is a ministry of the sword, as opposed to the diaconate, which is a ministry of compassion. The government, with that sword, causes much damage and accomplishes much less compared to its far greater cost, right? I mean, we don't bring swords to our diaconate meetings. We, we try not to break things <laughs> or have things cost more than they should. All right, getting to our current day, we've learned even greater lesson in social interference by the state. Back in 1986, Gary North argued for the impossibility of Old Testament enforcement of the Sabbath in the Christian era. Particularly, the reason he makes this argument, particularly out of the difficulty of determining what services would be determined vital. This is 1986. Christ says of the Sabbath day, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Mark 2.27. In 2020, we got a taste of what the world would look like with a worldwide effort to determine what services were vital and what was not by civil rulers. We do have a precedent for quarantining diagnosed individuals. Leviticus 13.4 and Deuteronomy 24.8 are two examples. However, I don't know about you, but I have not heard a scriptural warrant for forcing healthy citizens to remain in their homes. I would love to hear an argument. I haven't found one. There has been no shortage of stories of businesses closed, livelihoods ruined, and lost incentives to work. So you can see, in effect, a Sabbath year has been forced upon people who did not consider their own work, which provides them food, to be non-essential, even despite the risk of contracting a potentially fatal disease. So I hope you see the parallel there between forcing people to rest. All right. Now, let's look at resisting the state. You go through the accounts of the kings of Israel. Um, my wife is doing this now with our kids um, through our, our regular breakfast uh, readings. Um, it's mentioned multiple times that the kings failed to, quote, remove the high places, uh, which is a biblical way of saying incorrect worship and service to God. Even a righteous king, Azariah, who reigned for 52 years, failed to do that. 52 years. It only took one generation after him to have an evil king come after him. The Bible clearly teaches from the conquest of Canaan to the leaven of the Pharisees in the New Testament, it's not enough simply to restrain evil. That leaven will go through the dough. You shall put away the evil from among you, Deuteronomy 17.7 says. 
As we all know, the Democratic Party of the United States has long set the political agenda. Their agenda is to remove Christ's rule from upon the people. I think Bob kind of touched on that as sort of the, the goal of critical race theory and all that. Um, the Republican Party stands simply as a party of resistance to any further progress by the Democratic Party. And that generally is in word only. Because that party has a secular worldview, its platform is not to kiss the sun, according to Psalms 2. The party has no unique comprehensive vision for government either. It has long stood for the continuation of ongoing programs such as public education, the prison system, and major welfare programs such as Social Security. The reforms that the Republican Party aims uh, to set in place only simplify the existing system, attempt to simplify the existing system, like a flat tax or something, or to more make the system work for you, rather than to even question whether any of these systems should exist. Uh, you can look for examples of when the Republican Party pitches a, you know, a, a, a spending cut amidst Democratic tax increases. If you look at the definition of the cut, it's going to be a large amount, but it's going to be spread over 10 years, and you're like, well, if we go up by trillions and you're asking for a few billions over 10 years, it's a drop in the bucket. You're not going to notice it, but yet it's like a big deal and everything. It's, oh, it's a big fight. But I can get even more devastating. The Republican Party, since 1973, has had control of both houses of Congress for an aggregate total of 16 years. Six of those years included control of the White House as well. Despite a widely advertised stance against abortion, it has inexcusably let the practice continue under the infamous Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade. The Constitution specifically delineates the power of the Supreme Court to be subject to the regulation of Congress. Um, Article 3, Section 2, 2 says, The Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. And yet this power has not been exercised since 1868, when in a particular Reconstruction case, the court lost its jurisdiction. And the court publicly recognized in its report that the, quote, power to make exceptions to the appellate jurisdiction of this court is given by express words. They made a decision. Congress didn't like it. The decision was gone. And the court just had to accept it. You're done. We're going home. I think the public today is completely unaware of this ability of Congress. And it's never mentioned by the Republican Party, nor is it mentioned in public, popular media. The focus is all who's on the court, and nothing ever changes. So this is resistance without a vision. Resistance without a vision for Christ's plan, unfortunately, eventually leads up to pent-up frustration. Just like Cain against his brother Abel, this pent-up frustration will eventually lash out in violence. And now we've seen that in our own times. We've seen riots by both liberal and conservative secularists Ironically, from Capitol Hill in Seattle to Capitol Hill in D.C., we have both sides of the riot coin with the same name. <clears throat> All right, well, what's the path forward? It sounded really awful. Well, despite these present shortcomings, we must not lose heart. 
We know that we're on the road to victory. We have the comprehensive plan. As the church continues to evangelize, this is happening and will continue to happen, and as the church is forced by current events like COVID-19 to study the deficiencies in its doctrine and improve its witness, Christ's kingdom will advance. But if the Christian, either by his own volition, right, just doesn't, I don't think I'm supposed to do this, or I, don't, I, I'm, I think it's going to be bad till Christ's return, whatever his own decision-making was, or if he's externally restricted, as we saw in the Supreme Court case at the beginning, if he does not disciple the leaders of a nation towards obedience to Christ, and that nation will continue to serve other gods. Instead of being a minister of the one true God that it is called out to do in Romans 13:4. But if we as Christians can unite, right, with this worldview, this comprehensive worldview that can actually bring progress, hope, and joy, if we can unite and see our obligation to disciple even starting with local communities. We don't have to sit around and complain about the president. What can we do in Torrance? If we can disciple our local communities, particularly in the civil sphere, and see that scripture provides a vision for how the civil sphere should be. I mean, we've all, we deal even right now locally with mask laws per county, at least. If we can use scripture to tune the vision of how the sphere should be, we will see, we are guaranteed to see, because Christ is our king. This is what he wants. We are guaranteed to see positive political progress. That is his goal. We will see submission of rulers to Christ's rule. This is what he died on the cross for and rose again. We will see justice and freedom in a true Christian sense. Thank you.